Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 145 with my guest, Dr. David Lisak. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. A couple of hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle that you can uh, follow me at. Please go check out the website. There's all kinds of good stuff on there. And I also want to give a shout out to our sponsor for uh, this this week's episode, um, the organization oneinsix.org. Uh, the website is um, the one and the six are both numbers. And a one in six is the, um, that is the statistic of men who are the victim of childhood sexual abuse and their website has tons of uh, really really helpful stuff for uh, survivors again one in six dot org I'm going to kick this episode off with um, a couple of excerpts from the struggle in a sentence survey this one was filled out by a, a woman who calls herself another orphan about her depression she says uh After I come down from the weird anxiety high and depression strikes, nothing I think, feel, say, or do matters because I, as a human being, don't matter. About her anxiety, she says, I feel like I have to put a puzzle with over a thousand pieces that are all in grayscale together in under a minute. Um, This is filled out by James, and uh, about his OCD, he writes... I just got off a plane, and I'm so glad I remembered to blink 17 times so it wouldn't crash. And then lastly, I want to share with you uh, a tweet from Ryan J. Smith, uh, whose handle is uh, at Gaming Savant. He wrote, if I were in a band, I I would want it to be called Some Stuff Happened, but I don't know if it counts as music. 
Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with uh, Dr. David Lisak, who is a clinical psychologist and a forensic uh, psychologist and uh, a survivor of, uh, of childhood sexual abuse. That's right. I am. And uh, I'm so glad that you're um, able to come on. I know you're a really busy guy. We tried to record yesterday, but you had about a thousand commitments and we're running around. So I'm glad we're, we're able to make it, uh, it happen today. Where would be a good place to start because there's a gazillion questions that i that i want to ask you um well we can we can start wherever um you know i i spent a long time researching uh sexual abuse and uh, how it affects men and i've spent a long time working with men in clinical settings and also do a lot of forensic work um almost always working with men who are sexually abused uh so i'm happy to start anywhere uh you know we'll, we'll talk about the uh, forensic uh aspect because when i hear the word forensic i just think of csi and you know you know somebody with tweezers uh, and the, the scene taped off so what 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 do you mean when you say forensic uh well as a psychologist um <clears throat> i uh evaluate men uh, who are in some kind of serious trouble. So I, I work almost exclusively in homicide cases, uh, and, and most of these are also death penalty cases. Uh, I'm hired by the defense uh, to evaluate these men um, to provide mitigation evidence. So basically to either, if they've already been convicted, to get them off death row if possible, and if they're facing trial, to prevent them from getting a death sentence. And uh, um, we do pretty uh, intensive investigations that where we find out uh, a lot about their childhoods. Uh, we collect every piece of paper ever generated on them, school records, medical records, and interview often dozens and dozens of people, uh, if at all possible, we go back two and three generations. And it's very instructive uh, because what we know is that the vast majority of men who do commit serious crimes uh, were abused and very severely as children, um, whereas at the same time, the vast majority of men who are abused do not perpetrate violence of any type. So then let me play devil's advocate for uh, a second and say, well, then what separates the two of them other than possibly that person's decision to do that as opposed to their compulsion and i'm with you because i you know as a as a recovering addict i know what it's like to be powerless over uh, you know the compulsion to drink every night telling myself this is ruining your life but unable to not pour myself a drink so i, I have empathy for that person but I would imagine in the courtroom there's some tension there with people that that feel like this this person needs to die for what they the the lives they've ruined. Well, there is often a lot of tension in the courtroom. Um, 
And even post-conviction, even in a courtroom just with lawyers and a judge, there's often a great deal of tension. Um, what, What people have to understand is that you know, we are all responsible ultimately for our actions. And, and these men, it's not like, um, you know, when we uh, provide all this information to the court, and we tell their story, and it's a horrible story. It's not like, you know, the court's going to say, oh, well, that excuses it. Therefore, you know, you can walk, you know, they're not going to walk, they're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison for the crimes they've committed. Right. Um, so they are held responsible and they're held accountable. It's just a matter of, you know, to what degree. And, and in some ways, you know, when we pass a death sentence on somebody, I always feel like it's a, it's a way of saying they are solely and fully responsible for what they did. And most of these men have uh, been failed. They've been failed by their parents, by their communities, by their schools, by social services, by psychiatric facilities, by psychologists, by attorneys. There were a lot of people who, you know, bear some responsibility. And, and that's really all the mitigation is about is, is you know, let, let's share this a little bit rather than deciding that he and he alone is responsible for what he did. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that abuse wires people in, in a certain way that is requires such intense, dedicated, supportive processing to begin to, to unwire, to rewire. Um, I think a lot of people think that, that awareness is enough for that person that is sick to not lash out. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in fact, you know, it, it's interesting that you use the word, the term wired, because we now, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, the um, advances in neuroscience um, are, are really phenomenal. And, and we understand in a fair amount of detail um, some of the ways that, that uh, abuse, and especially severe abuse and chronic abuse, um, really does uh, shape the developing brain. And it's not that that cannot be undone or, or healed. It can be. Um, but it is, as you say, it, 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 it's not just, you know, you wake up one morning, you say, ah, okay, I was abused. And now everything's just peachy. It, it is a lot of hard work. I mean, that's a good first step. But there's a lot of hard work that must come. I, I read a, a report where they measured the prefrontal cortex of people that had been chronically abused as children. And it is millimeters thicker than the average cortex, um, which I guess has to do with impulse control. Is, is, uh, yes, the, 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 the prefrontal cortex is, is primarily responsible for, for being able to, you know, contain impulses and emotions, channel them. Uh, you know, when we tell two-year-olds in the, in the playground, use your words, you know, essentially what we're doing is training exactly that. We're building the frontal cortex and that child's capacity to, you know, even though somebody, some other child, you know, took the toy that they were playing with instead of lashing out, what we want them to do is turn that anger and turn that impulse into, hey, I was using that toy or I was, you know, or ask or whatever, you know, use some kind of words. And, and um, what we know is that, the the development of the frontal lobes um, is is really hinged on all the day to day interactions and 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 the things that we associate with parenting and it doesn't have to be parents just parenting anybody caretaking um, talking to touching uh, in a good way mm-hmm. in a respectful way um, uh, um, interacting with kids and, and, and the, all those millions of kinds of interactions are what builds the frontal lobes. And when you have a kid who is neglected, 
um, some of the most damaging effects of neglect are, are, are simply the absence of those kinds of building sort of interactions that help build the brain, and especially the frontal lobes. I'm so glad that, that, that you said that because for many people, myself included, I couldn't have compassion for what helped, what, what happened to me because I, I didn't have like a singular event to point to. But once I got into support groups and began to see that template for unconditional love and support mm-hmm. and being heard and felt and seen, I suddenly realized that much of the abuse was the absence of those things in, in a child. And it first made me feel like, oh, I'm being dramatic calling this abuse. But a parent has that responsibility to there's I, I printed on the the website i don't know who the person is that came up with it but it was a childhood bill of rights this most beautiful thing i've i've ever read and i i think they should teach that in school and and to every parent that is about to have a child yeah yeah uh, um so the the forensics uh, forensic work what give me a typical a typical case of well, um, well, I'll, I'll spare us all perhaps the crime, since uh, you can all imagine um, typically um, the, the kind of crime that, that uh, will land you on death row is, is um, very often you know, a pretty terrible homicide or, or multiple homicides. Um, and, and typically the, the men who commit these crimes are young. Um, I, many of the cases I've worked on, the, the um, men were 18 or 19, 20, 21 um, when they committed the crime. Um, what we find when we start digging into their background is um, the um, overwhelming, um, just pervasive abuse and neglect and violence. And when I say pervasive, I mean not just within their immediate family, but within their extended family. So if you think about just their generation, it's not just within their home, you know, their brothers and sisters or parents, but their cousins and their uncles. And uh, so you've got violence, you've got abuse, you've got drug abuse, you've got alcoholism, a lot of chaos. And what that means is is, is very significant because sometimes if you have a child who's growing up in a, in a home where there's all this going on, if they have an uncle or an aunt or a you know, some cousins, just somebody in their family who can provide some level of caretaking and interactions, positive, you know, interactions that can be really protective to some degree and really, you know, sort of be at least the difference between a catastrophic outcome. But most of these guys live in such, you know, they're embedded in such com- just, just, as I said, pervasive abuse. But then it gets worse than that because it's not just their generation. You know the 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 abuse and and the violence and the and the alcoholism um, extends you know sort of backwards. So it's it's the the previous generation, uncles and aunts and 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 grandparents and sometimes great grandparents. Um, so they're really surrounded by it, and um, it just diminishes dramatically the likelihood that there's going to be anybody positive in their life, anybody that they can latch onto in some way. Uh, and, and I'm glad you, you said that as well, because uh, I know there are many people who listen who have a really sick spouse, um, but there's some healthiness in that other spouse, and they can make all the difference in that that child's world. And yeah. I want them to, to have hope that, that they can make a difference, that even though there is all this adversity in their in their kids' lives, um, 
especially for a divorced couple where there is isn't that you're not in the same room with that spouse so you can't yeah. be there and you just hear, hear it secondhand yeah. you know maybe from the kid or, or or somebody else um let's talk about about your your story where where would be a good place to start with that you were born in montreal i was yes. yeah um we're still going to continue this, even though you're a Canadian fan. Actually, I love the I love the Montreal Canadiens. Such a great, such a great history, um, and such all the Canadian teams except for Vancouver. Who, as far as I, and it's just a, it's the just the current Vancouver team. I hope after everybody there is gone, they win a Stanley Cup because I love this city. Enough about my uh, my love of Canada. Um, you were born in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, I was born in Montreal, and. Uh my um my story really begins with world war 2 uh because uh world war 2 kind of shattered the world and um and and you know beyond the 50 million people who were killed um just you know entire nations and and peoples were up completely upheaval and uh so it um i i guess the the, the most direct uh implication was uh my uh my mother was a single mother uh, I had an older brother two years older than me and uh so it was just the three of us and and uh, we struggled. My mother decided that she uh needed to find some kind of stable uh sort of uh, income and so she uh decided to go to teacher's college uh, and it was a one year uh program uh but in order to do that, she had to get on a bus at six o'clock in the morning and she only got back at you know essentially six p m at night um so she had to arrange all kinds of childcare. I was five years old in kindergarten. My brother was a couple years older than me. And one and, where, of the, and where was your father? Uh, my father died when I was ten months old. Oh, okay. Uh, so it was just the three of us. Okay. Um, and one of the arrangements that my mother made was both to help out financially and with childcare is she brought in a boarder, uh, gave him a room and in exchange for room and, and I don't know what kind of board arrangements, um, and, and in also exchange for taking care of me in the afternoon because was in kindergarten it was only half day. So my brother would go back to school after lunch, but I would stay, and my mother needed somebody for a few hours to take care of me. Um, so that was the arrangement. And the person that she brought in to do this was a uh, – he was a, a barely a teenager. I think he was 19. Um, and he was himself a refugee uh, from the war. He was uh, uh, from a Dutch family that was living in the, in Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony uh, before World War II. And when the Japanese invaded, um, they rounded up all the Dutch citizens and put them in concentration camps, uh, separating the, the women and children and the men. Uh, and those camps, there's been a, a fair amount written about them. They were horrendous places. And uh, many, if not most, of the children there were, were abused in all manner of ways. Uh, and I can only imagine that he was as well. Because what he then proceeded to do to me over the course of, you know, and I don't really have a, a, a solid memory. I, I, I have bits and pieces of memory that, that allow me to patch together uh, what I think happened and what I know which is, happened. Which is also really common and a lot of people Very. beat themselves up for is because it's gray or it's foggy or there's just a snapshot or a, yes. you know, a vignette or just an, an image burned into their mind that they don't know. Um, yes. Is this valid? Yes. And, and you know, it, when it happens to you when you're a child, 
you have not only the fact that you're, you're a child, and this was a long time ago, and yet you don't have the capacity to weave together coherent memories that we do as adults, uh, but also that, that the traumatic experience itself alters the way the brain remembers and encodes the experience and, and makes it much more likely that it's encoded in these very fragmented ways. Is that um, the brain protecting itself? Um, I don't know that we, we know. We just know that uh, we actually understand now right down to the, the, at the neurochemical level um, what goes on in the brain that is so different and why it has this kind of impact on different parts of the brain that have different functions. And um, nobody has yet you know, kind of, I don't think even come up with a theory about why this is other than we know that it's, that's the way the brain responds. Um, so um, over the course of uh, probably about three months, and it was during the fall, and of course, for the rest of my life, the fall has been this very fraught time of year. On the one hand, I always loved the fall growing up in Montreal. Um, but on the other hand, um, it was full of triggers for me. Uh, literally, the, the sound of dry leaves blowing across the pavement, the feel of the air, the coolness at night, you know, all these things became triggers. Um, and he, he, um, he pretty much sexually tortured me for about three months. And um, he uh, threatened me. Um, and if you told, yes, right. yes. And one of, uh, and, and this has been, you know, part of my, you know, sort of long process of coming to understand not only what happened, but what, it, what the impact was. Uh, and I, I've come to understand that one of the most severe, most damaging, uh, of the impacts was living in my house with my family, my brother and my mother and, uh, being of course, terrorized into silence as a five-year-old, I still, the way I understood that was that they were letting this happen. Wow. That, you know, in my own house, because he not only terrorized me during the day, that he started to, to, to do this at night as well. And um, so I felt like, well, my mother's not stopping it. My mother's not protecting me. Um, and it, it really created this, within me, this incredibly deep rift between myself and the only two members of my family, my brother and my mother, um, which had a really long-term impact on me and, and really separated me from them and, and isolated me from them. Can you describe that more, what it, what it felt like in your thoughts and your feelings and your body, your, your relation to them and that, and that distance? Can you be more specific? Well, I, I think... Um, did you feel like they were a separate family from you? In some ways, yes. Um, I, um, from very early, I don't know how young I was, but quite young, uh, I started, um, I, I would collect survival um, tools and implements like bags of, of cornmeal, uh, penknife, um, fishing line, fishing hooks, uh, basically, and, and read books about survival in the, in the wilderness. And I would collect these things and put them in a pack and, and, and hide the, 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 the pack somewhere in the house or somewhere, you know, where I could get it, where nobody else knew it. And I would, I would go through these drills where uh, if I had to escape, I would grab the pack, go out the window, and then I would even have the route that I would take. Uh, Montreal was then less built up than it is now, and so I would have literally 
routes planned where I could get to some woods and get from those woods to some other woods, get out of the city, get it into the forest and up into the mountains north of Montreal, where essentially the wilderness extends up to the Arctic. Uh, And that was my fantasy was uh, this was how I would escape uh, danger. Um, but you was this see, only while he the border was living there? No, this was for years. Um, in fact, this was right through my adolescence. Um, the the um, this fantasy was was crucial to my survival. Yeah, and from what I understand, that's a really common thing, and often why adults who have difficulty being present. Um, is because as children they had to go to someplace safe in their in their mind and their thoughts and their fantasies. They had to create a world yes. where they would be okay. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it's almost universal that um, you you know whether you know some people find that that safe place by dissociating by essentially separating themselves from reality and, and going into a very private place. You know, um, and and sometimes it's through fantasy and and you know in my case it was a kind of a combination of fantasy and, and but also reality. I mean, I would, I literally schooled myself in how to you know survive in the woods and so forth. It became part of um, you know part of the direction of my early life actually. Um, so it was a kind of a hybrid. Uh, I also dissociated a fair amount as well, but I think all children um, have to, re- re- you know, resort to that uh, in one way or another because uh, we're simply too young. We are, there's no way that we can survive otherwise. Yeah. And Star Trek wouldn't have been popular. <laughs> <laughs> this is pre pre Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> um, talk about the the dissociating. What are what are the 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 common ways that that children uh, dissociate because I would imagine there were also kids that were just, well, I shouldn't use the word just, that's a terrible word to use. There were children whose, whose abuse was from peers in, in school. And that's every bit as, as traumatic. Um, But I guess I use the word just because to the public, it's just to, to people who haven't experienced abuse. They don't know that it's about, the feelings inside, not the event. Yes. And it's a very good point. And, and um, you know, one, another way in, in which that comes up is there, there are um, many men who are, who are abused by siblings, by a, a brother who may have just been a year or two older. Um, and, you know, it's the experience inside that determines what kind of effect this is going to have on somebody, not whether, you know, the brother's two or four years older or whether he's, you know, five pounds heavier or, you know, I mean, that's, that's irrelevant. It's the experience. The, the, the worst mistake people can make in waiting to heal is putting their thing on a graph right. and saying, I'm near the bottom. Right. So I only deserve this much compassion or it, it's not valid. No, it's what yeah. you're, it's what you're feeling. We have surveys on the website, um, particularly one called the shame and secrets survey and people share their deepest darkest shames secrets things they've done things that have happened to them and i would say probably about a third of the people that fill it out um something sexual happened between them and a sibling or a relative and you well you wouldn't be shocked but the average person would be shocked one of the things they can they can check off on the box is they can say i was Nothing happened. I was never sexually abused. Um, I was sexually abused and I reported it. I was sexually abused. I didn't report it. And some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And mm. it's shocking what people put under that category, how overt 
the abuse can be, and they can't. Right. Right. They can't name it. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, sometimes that's simply fed by the kind of misconceptions and, and myths that we have, especially around men and, 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 and boys and the kind of experiences that they have. Uh, and sometimes it's protective. Sometimes it's, if you know, for as long as you don't have to label it, um, you can sort of still keep it a little bit at bay. Uh, but the first time you use that word and you say to yourself or you say out loud, I was abused, that can be pretty shocking for people and it can, it, it can, pierce defenses. Um, and so I think a lot of people try to protect themselves from that moment as long as they can. I know for me, the moment that I was able to say that and call it that, I felt like an astronaut who had been snipped from that lifeline and I was floating in space and yeah. I didn't know up from down, left from right, and I wanted to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that that I take it is is common when people face yeah. that? Yeah, it, well, and because it's a it's a that's a very it's a beautiful, it's a harsh but beautiful description of the 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 disorientation um, when you 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 confront for the first time that something bad really did happen to you, and even though you know a lot of people think of well people just use that as an excuse and you know in my experience. Um, it's you know far more common than people using an excuse is people avoid for as long as possible uh, coming to terms and confronting the fact that yeah something bad did happen to you and and it is related to you know whatever the struggles are that that you're having in your life. Do you think that reticence to do that is because then we have to view the world as such a chaotic harsh place or that we have to view ourselves as having been a helpless vulnerable child who was completely powerless well <clears throat> i think it, it's certainly it's overwhelming to um to really understand uh how helpless and vulnerable a child is and that we were all children and you know, especially you know, once you're an adult, and, and especially if you're an adult who has been uh, protecting yourself in various ways from the, that experience and that reality, um, to to get past that and and to really take in that you, you were vulnerable, you were helpless. There's nothing you could do. Um, even just to hear those words, I'm remembering that that scene that, that that maybe some people remember from the movie Goodwill Hunting when Robin Williams keeps repeating over and over again to Matt Damon it, it it's not your fault it's not your fault it's not your fault and you know Matt Damon tries to kind of brush him off brush him off joke with him and then finally just collapses because of course if he does feel like it's his fault and and what is so overwhelming in that moment is that if it wasn't my fault then something really bad was done to me. And that is a crushing, really hard thing to, to, to face, you know. And, you know, the nice thing, of course, is he wept, which is the appropriate response. You weep in grief over something like that. Uh, but then having done that, um, you know, to be able to pick yourself up and walk away and feel, you know, okay, it wasn't my fault. And, and so I have to live with the fact that something bad happened to me, but I don't have to live with, the feeling that 
it was me who did it, that I was responsible for it. Did you go through that period where you blamed yourself? Oh, of course. What of course. What were your reasonings for why? The worst, you know, <clears throat> the 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 rational components of that are the easier ones to deal with because you can kind of look at them, you can use your, your brain, right? And you can look and say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I was five years old. What was I supposed to do? You know, that part is relatively easy, just relatively. But sure. <laughs> the harder part is I think most of us who experience this internalize in our bone marrow that it is our, we're, we were responsible, that it was somehow our fault, that somehow we were responsible for what happened. We were, this happened to us, something bad happened to us because we were bad. Is that us trying to cling to some sense of control? I think it, it can be that, but I think it is most frequently um, a, a an integral part of childhood. All children um, in fact, it has a, uh, there's a term for it, internalization. All children are very prone to internalizing experience. So if your parents are lucky enough to be born in a good family and your parents treat you nicely and treat you well, they affirm you, you internalize that. And, and what that means is that your sense of who you are is that you are good. It, that, that's just it. And you, 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 you maybe even can't even put a word to it. It's just how you experience yourself but the opposite is also true so if you're you're mistreated and treated badly or abused you internalize that and in your bone marrow you feel like well i'm bad that makes sense and that that's a hard sense. one see that's a hard one then mm -hmm. to 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 come to terms with um were you confused by any physical response that you had um i i know for me um there were, there was one instance in particular where my mom was inappropriate and um i became aroused and just that was like a, a tattoo stamped on my soul for 30 years that i assumed that meant that i was the creepy one yeah did you go through that i i don't know because there's much of what happened to me that i don't remember what what i do remember is more more the you know the the terrors that I experienced, uh, but it's extremely common. Um, and, and it's extremely common for a number of reasons. One is, uh, first of all, the body just physiologically responds to stimulation in various ways, and that's completely physical. It has nothing to do with anything other than the physical stimulation. Um, but there's also another element is that in, in, in it's fairly common for, for sexual predators who are abusing kids to deliberately uh, to stimulate those kids to try to get them, you know, have some kind of arousal response um, because it, it, it enhances their sense of control and power over this child and because it, it feeds their distortion. You see, oh, the, the, the kid likes it, right. you know, so this is not wrong. The kid wants this and likes it. And so it, it, it is part of that whole sort of distorted, abusive uh, dynamic that they're enacting. Um, and what that does, of course, to the kid is... You know, now the kid feels, well, I must have wanted it, or they must have somehow known that I would want it. Um, yeah, and and um, for men especially, um, th this is something that can endure. You know, is oftentimes one of their darkest, almost sort of um, painful secrets, and and they are just just scared uh, to to ever reveal that to anybody because of what they think it means. 
Um, and, and that's one of the things that is, I think, one of the most important things that uh, we all have to do is, is have this, get this information out there and, and so that, you know, fewer, you know, boys and fewer, you know, adolescents and fewer adult men um, are, are sort of kept, you know, captive by that kind of, of misinformation and myth and, um, and, and, you know, secret that they, they harbor about themselves. Uh, the other thing that I'd like to mention, and I've mentioned this many times on the podcast, but I feel like it, it it's worth repeating, is you also, and this was my experience, was my genitals um, were never touched, but it was situations where I felt invaded, I felt objectified, there was a um, an element to it where I felt tricked. I felt like I was being used, and for the longest time, I didn't even know that that was abusive because there was so much lavishing of praise outside of those situations. I never saw that in many ways as grooming, um, especially when it's your mom, because you expect, you just assume, especially in the 60s and 70s, Moms are infallible. Moms yeah. are moms love. You know, dads are the ones that that beat. They're the only ones that you know. That's how what abuse is. Is you're getting you're getting beaten, right. and you don't know about sexual abuse when you're a kid, especially in the '60s and '70s. You just didn't. It was never talked about. So um, it was very. It got buried so deep, and even now, as I as I say it, I I, I feel a bit of tension thinking about the listener that's going. Oh, you fucking baby, you, you want to play the victim, um, so that you can get attention or, or whatever. And day by day, the part of me that says, that tells that voice to be quiet, um, is getting bigger and stronger, but it is a battle. Yeah. Can you talk, can you talk about that? Well, I, I think, um, Probably every man who's been sexually abused fights that battle, right? And you know, it, it'll um, the, the the specific content of it might be a little bit different um, depending on the circumstances of the, what they experienced. Um, but I think we all fight it. Um, and and the voice, you know. But how could you fight it? Yours was so clearly. Oh, <laughs> you, that, but that's know. the that's the mis misunderstanding or the misapprehension is that somehow. Well, you know, if somebody terrorizes you, well, that's completely different. And, and, and of course, you would understand as an, oh, no, as a child, um, I, I can't tell you over the years how many decades now that I've been working on this, struggling with this and the therapy and so forth, you know, multiple, you know, sort of ways in which I um, internalized, you know, the, the, it, and, and felt that I was bad. This happened to me because I was bad, that I was responsible, that, that I was, you know, was humiliated. That I, I carried around this incredible level of shame about all kinds of things. If you had been different, if your personality had been different, this wouldn't have happened. If you had fought, if you had spoken up, are, are those all things that, that you went through or, or other people go through? Um, well, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's, it's sort of, there, there's this like this whole shopping basket of ways in which we blame ourselves, yeah. and and so we each you know get to for whatever reasons pick out you know our own personal you know sort of three or four or whatever it is. Um, what are the ones that you hear, and what are the ones that you experience? Um, well, I've heard over the years. Of course, I've heard you know almost every possible 
you know, sort of version and configuration of this. And, and that's and one of the values of, of, you know, having been a therapist and, and, um, and, and interviewed a lot of men in research. And so, and you, you hear so many ways that men internalize the experience and blame themselves that at some point you have to realize, at least intellectually, that, you know, my God, everybody's doing, you know, no wonder I've, I've got these, you know, my own internalizations because it's literally universal. Um, and for myself, you know, I think um, probably the toughest one over the years, the one that I struggled and, and have struggled also all my life with is this basic internal, de- you know, sort of sense, this deep sense that there's something wrong with me, uh, that I'm just not good enough. I'm not, you know, there's just fundamentally something wrong with me. Um, and it, it is, you know, it, when something is internalized that deeply, it's like you can't even see it. it. It's essentially just part of the fabric of who you are. So it's a real challenge to, to I don't know, step outside yourself, you know, far enough to kind of look back and see, you know, almost, part of yourself. Almost like a food blaming itself for being on a buffet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, like, okay. that's, that's, that's what I was born to be. How could I, right? you know, right. how could I, Yeah. how could it been have been any different? That's who I am yeah. and that's my place in the world. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the, the messages that needs to go out, you know, sort of loud and clear and constant is that's what we all share in common is, you know, w- whether you were, you know, seduced and groomed, you know, whether you were terrorized, it, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, we are all going to come out of those experiences with those profound levels of shame and self-blame and holding ourselves re- responsible and internalizing that. Um, and, and that's what we share in common. And that's, that's a lot. Uh, and there's a lot that we can help each other with, you know, in just sort of describing how we each battle with that. You know, and, and and share our victories too. So, how did you then? Let's go from when that that person moved out. They were there for three months, and then they moved out. You must have been elated when that person moved out. Well, actually, um, <clears throat> when I uh, first disclosed, before I disclosed to my mother, which was um, about thirty years or more after the abuse, um, before I disclosed, I, I asked her a bunch of questions. Um, and what I found out is <clears throat> my mother um, kicked him out of the house literally one evening. Um, they told him, pack up and leave. And I asked her about, you know, because I, I was trying to remember when he left and why. And so I asked her, and she said she remembered that, that it was very sudden. And I said, well, why? And she said, well, I just had this sense that something wasn't right. And so she kicked him out. And then, of course, she had nobody to take care of me the next, literally the next afternoon. So she went across the street to these elderly ladies, these two sisters who lived by themselves and said, you know, is there any way you could come and take care of my son, you know, in the afternoon tomorrow until I can figure out. And so they said, sure. So one of them came over. And, um, as soon as my brother went back to school in the afternoon, I apparently turned on this poor old woman and started screaming obscenities and all kinds of horrible, awful, angry, just, I just went into almost like berserk. And the poor woman apparently was, as you can imagine, just extremely upset and distraught. Um, and as soon as my mother came back, you know, she explained, you know, told my mother of this and said, you know, please don't ask me to come again. (laughs) You have the devil of a son. (laughs) And so my mother described all this. I had no memory of this, but that is a classic, absolutely classic. I mean, 
if if you would you know ex, you know sort of describe that to a clinician or a social worker trained in the nineteen from the nineteen nineties on, let's say, boy, their antennae would have gone up, and they would have said, boy, something happened to this child, and given the sexual content of some of what he was yelling and screaming at this poor old woman, I have a pretty good suspicion of what it is. But of course, this was not. This was the 1950s, late 50s. Um, but my mother remembered it vividly. Um, so um, I, I, I discovered all these things um, and, and more uh, before I, I told her. Um, and, then, and then there was that terrible moment of having to tell her. What was uh, that like? I was living in North Carolina. And she was still living in Montreal. And I flew up <clears throat> without warning, literally knocked on her door. And I'd written a 14-page letter. And I walked in and I said, Mom, there's something you need to read. And um, I'll sit over here. And I sat down in her living room. And she sat down at the table in the kitchen. And I remember looking. She had her back to me as she was sitting at the table. And I, could just, I just saw her slumping sort of over the table. And, <clears throat> you know, my poor mother had survived a lot already. She had escaped the Nazis, you know, escaped from the Nazis in Vienna, lost her sister, lost her fiance, lost her whole kind of previous life. Um, and, you know, and did her, her best, you know, she courageously in a lot of heroic ways actually raised two sons, you know, and, and, um, and to find out 30 some years after the fact, um, that this had happened to one of her children was, was, it was horrible. Um, on the other hand, I had been completely estranged from her, um, and by your <clears throat> choice, yes. Well, if you can call it that, yeah. uh, it was just, um, you were unable. Yeah. Was it that intimacy was terrifying or you didn't know how or both? Well, I think th there were certainly issues about intimacy for me, but, uh, with my mother in particular it was, I, I blamed her. I blamed her for abandoning me. Uh, and not protecting me from... She had no idea. And she had no idea. No idea. Um, but as a consequence of of the disclosure and, and starting to work on it and going through therapy, you know, um, we finally, uh, and, and really in a lot of ways for the first time in our lives, we, we, de we, we developed a relationship. And, we, um, and, and uh, so for the last 15 plus years of her life, uh, we had a much closer relationship than we'd ever had before. Were you a psychologist when you came to her with this? I, w I was still in graduate school. Okay. Uh, so I was a psychologist in training. Do you think that helped loosen um, that information up? It was, it, was, <clears throat> uh, it was part of the process. I, I had started the process really before graduate school and, and, and actually graduate school and, and choosing psychology was of course part of the process. Um, uh, and then as part of graduate school, I, I, uh, went into therapy, very, very intense therapy. And, and that's really what, what gave me the sort of provided the, the framework. I was just lucky enough to, um, have a really good therapist, uh, and very, very cheap because we were graduate students and, um, and, and that was pure luck. Um, but that was a big part of it. Talk, if you would, about how, if it has, especially as a younger man, affected your sexuality. I think um, as a young man, I think the way it affected my sexuality was, was 
um, essentially undermining my confidence. Um, I um, it, it undermined my confidence and uh, had had so sort of pushed me into being a loner, uh, you know, because I I felt alone within my family and and abandoned by my family. Um, that was my my disposition towards the world and towards people. So I had friends, um, and and I, I had ways of in, in, engaging, especially when I was younger. And it was mainly through hockey. You know, I played hockey, and I played hockey with a level of of uh, what <laughs> commitment and sometimes viciousness that because um, it was an outlet. Yeah, uh, and it was a way that you know a, a place where where I could you know uh, on the rink you can. The listeners are la- the regular <laughs> listeners are laughing uh-huh. right now because I always say the litmus test of where I'm at spiritually is how I lose when I'm playing. I play hockey like three nights a week. Uh, okay. and, and whether it, you can tolerate losing, <laughs> it, I've said more serenity prayers in the penalty box than I would ever. I've made more amends and apologies after getting tossed from a game to refs to people I've punched, yeah. and. Um, I totally get that. It's yeah. it's almost as if that's our primitive vocabulary before yes. we begin to. Yes, that's actually a beautiful way of putting it. Yes, yes. Uh, what level did you did you play hockey? I just uh, like amateur. Um, did you yeah, play am- junior? Okay, yeah, just amateur. Yeah, it's pretty serious business, and you got to be really good to to play at a you know back, especially, especially back in, in those, Canada in those days too. You know, uh, we, we I remember hearing about Guy Lafleur when Lafleur was a twelve year old. How old are you? You look very young for I'm your 59. age. Fifty-nine. <laughs> oh, you, well, you've taken good care of yourself. Um, so, uh, as a young man, then that became yeah. your your outlet for your your rage. Yes. Oh, yes. What uh, What were the triggers on the rink for you? Were there any? Oh yeah. Um, well, just getting hit, which of course you know it's part of hockey, but that's not the way I viewed it. <laughs> you know, I took it very personally. Yeah. So somebody hit me, and my reaction was, "Oh, I'm gonna hit them back." Um, you know, and somebody, somebody, you know, gave me a good body check in the corner, and I'd look, you know, I, I knew his number, right? Oh, yeah. And I'd just look for the next opportunity, uh, which is, of course, a pretty lousy way of playing hockey because you're, you're, not, you're no longer focusing on, on probably the most important things. But, but it feels so good when you mm-hmm. lower your shoulder into them and oh, you yes. flatten them. Yeah, and then you, you, you feel the, you know, we're, we're exactly flattened because, you know, the, the, the immovable object on the other side of them. <laughs> yes. And yeah. would you feel guilt after laying somebody out later or would it just be well i i I probably got laid out as often or more uh more often so uh i think the you know wherever guilt was really assuaged by the fact that i i i I took it you You took it as much as you oh at least as much as i gave it um and um you know the the guilt uh that i felt really came in more um you know you're asking about sexuality before um, as I got older into adolescence and I started having relationships with with girls, um, I um, what I could never tolerate was the the threat of being abandoned. So I always ended relationships. Um, Would you stay in abusive relationships? I never had abusive relationships. Um, uh, the the things that I feel. Um, guilty for and regretful about now were just the the ways. I mean, these were just these were adolescent hurts. This was nothing, and I didn't do anything physical to anybody. But um, when I look back, there was this clear pattern of 
me ending the relationships. And, you know, I couldn't tell you now, I mean, I, I guess, you know, every, for every one of them, there were, I, I had my reasons. Uh, but, it, you know, when you look back over the years and you see the pattern, you realize, well, there's, there may have been those immediate reasons, but there was something else going on here. What would you feel when they would see you, when you could feel them looking into you hmm. and accepting you and loving you? That's intolerable, you see. That's intolerable. Like burlap on your skin? Yeah, because, yeah. you know, at that stage, you still feel so much shame about who you are that somebody looking at you like that just brings out that shame, yeah. just like it, you know, and, and it's intolerable. I and, would feel rage. Uh, mm -hmm. I would feel rage like, yep. you idiot. And it wasn't conscious. It was, I didn't know why. I just wanted to s scream. Yeah, yeah. But go ahead. I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off. Well, no, but that's, I mean, that's, that's you know, um, if, if you, you listen to what you just said and, and imagine, though, how, does, how do you then, how do you have a relationship with somebody, an enduring <laughs> relationship, right? When, um, when that's how you feel about yourself. And, and what, you know, the goal of intimacy, of course, is to have somebody who really does see you, you know, you see into you, see the, the, the you, and, and still loves you. And if you can't tolerate that, how can you tolerate and how can you have an intimate relationship? And that's why, you know, so many men who've been sexually abused have such trouble for so long with relationships, you know, and, you know, broken marriages and so forth. Um, because they, they can't tolerate that level of acceptance or love and because they can't tolerate themselves yet. And that's why it's so important to come to that inform, come to your, your spouse or your partner with that information, I, assuming that that is somebody who is safe um, to do that with. Um, and and if, if, you know, is therapy a better place to let that out first? Is it with the spouse? Does it depend on who the, the, the partner is? Oh, I think it totally depends on, on, you know, a great therapist, fabulous. Great spouse or partner, fabulous. Um, it, it's, I, you know, I have heard so many different, stories and versions of, of um, what has saved men. And, and it's been many, many times, you know, a really good therapist. And many, many times it's, it's just a, a partner, you know, who, who they finally are able to trust. Uh, and sometimes it's the confluence of, you know, a point in their life when they are ready to, um, they can more tolerate that, open gaze of somebody who sees them and who loves them or trusts them and, and whom they can trust. And now instead of fleeing, or maybe they have the urge to flee, or they have that impulse that you described, you know, that rage, but then they can hold that back. The surveys and, and the listeners that I've connected with who have shared that with the spouse, you, there have been instances where that spouse tells them to just get over it. I've I've yet to hear an instance where that spouse is female and says that. But there are males who say that to the female spouses. And is that a reflection of our culture, of, of how men are kind of shamed for feeling and for not just pulling themselves up by their by their bootstraps? Do you think it's because women can also because they are sexually abused more widely than men, 
that many of them have had some experience that they can relate to. Why, why do you think that is, that some of the men would go that route and when their wife comes to them with this painful thing to just... Well, I, I do think that it is it, it is more likely to, to get that kind of a negative or unhelpful or, or you know, um, really a, sometimes even abusive response to a disclosure from a man. And, and yes, I think it's more likely that men are... Um, are you know frightened of that level of emotion, that level of pain? Don't know how, just don't have the experience, or don't know how to respond. Um, it's it's it can be overwhelming for men who don't even have sometimes the vocabulary of how to, you know, either literally vocabulary or the emotional vocabulary to to respond. And so they they just want to cut it off, and they say you know you know so it comes out as you know get over it you know um, or dismissive in some way. Uh, I have, however, I have heard that from men. Uh, having that experience from their wives or partners. Um, And and sometimes it's because the partner has also has an abusive Mm -hmm. experience that they have not really dealt with. They don't want to open that door. Exactly. They don't want to open that door. And so they don't want you opening that door. Mm -hmm. So they they do everything they can to shut it. Where I do hear that um, from both um, females and males going to a parent, I do hear that with mothers, you know, minimizing it. And I would imagine part of that is because then they have to consider whether or not they failed that child somehow, even if they did or didn't, because that's just too frightening of a proposition. Yes. And, and, you know, there are a lot of individual reasons. Sometimes uh, they have their own histories, you know, moms Mm -hmm. and dads. I mean, let's remember that uh, just because we are, you know, more open and understanding of how many people have been abused, it didn't start with our generation. No. Um, so there are plenty of parents and grandparents out there who've been harboring secrets for even longer. And I think many of them feel like I've lived with it for this long. Yes. So uh, you can too. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to be both a victim and a consoler. You yeah. know, yeah. I didn't get to get to get consoled. And many of them, I don't think have anything to give. I think they're, coming from a place of such lack or emptiness or hurt there there's not that you know I'm a believer that intimacy has to be come from a place of of abundance there has to be uh we have to have a reservoir you know from from which to give and if you've never confronted your abuse um it's really hard cuz it's almost like there's there's a hole in the bottom of that uh, of that reservoir um yeah, and if you haven't if you haven't confronted it, then there's it's hard to imagine how you would be able to respond in any kind of helpful way to somebody yeah. who is now a child, especially of yours, who is is trying to disclose something. Yeah, um, that's simply not going to happen. And there's a difference between being aware that something happened to you and giving it weight. Yes, there's a there's a huge difference. Huge. Um, and you know, as as anybody who has embarked on this. This sort of process of of really dealing with this and, and trying to heal the, the the various ways in which you've been hurt and harmed, um, it's a long process. And talk, it's a lot of work. Talk about yours. It's many many years of of you know therapy, uh, and then beyond the therapy for um, <clears throat> I have a a trunk at home, good sized trunk filled with journals, uh, thousands and thousands of pages. Um, when did you start that in graduate school? Um, I actually started keeping journals before even I have some journals from all the way back when I was eight years old, but, um, 
when I was in graduate school and even just before graduate school, actually, for the, the, the years when I really, when I really started, even before I knew I was starting to deal with it, I started it. Uh, and it was, I was keeping journals. Um, and uh, so that was a big, you know, sort of a, and a constant in the, the process. And, and then um, through my relationships and, and, you know, for a number of years, I was really working through some of these, many of these issues without really knowing mm -hmm. that I was working through these issues yeah. and with a lot of collateral damage, you know, to myself and to other people, you know, again, not in any, you know, sort of not in any physical way or overt way, but just in the, in the, <clears throat> the failures in relationships and relationships that, that, that certainly could have been much happier for everyone uh, had I been um, more conscious of, you know, the things that I was struggling with and, and, and even aware maybe of, of where they, they originated from. Yeah. It, it, there are ripples when a person gets abused, it is not contained to, to just that person. And I, I know that sounds kind of obvious, but I think we, I think we forget that, yes. that, that it is, um, it lasts a yes. long time and, and it affects many people. You know, the other, the other thing before we get back into your story and, and how you processed all of this, I get a lot of people filling out the survey who were themselves children when they um, abused or, you know, inappropriately experimented with a sibling or somebody younger than them, and they cannot forgive themselves. What would you like to say to those? To the, because I'm always encouraging those people to forgive themselves. If you have contact with that person that you feel you abused, maybe contact them and and you know, tell them you're, you're, you're sorry if that's what you're, if that's what you're feeling. But if you, if you, let's say to the person who can't contact that person, what would you, what would you say? Well, you know, this may not be the solution for everyone, but, um, there is a, um, a, a clinical literature, certainly actually even a research literature on, it's, it's called reactive abuse. And it, it's a, it, it's a, a, a widely understood phenomenon that children who have been sexually abused will very frequently, essentially commonly, um, uh, reenact the abuse. And it can happen in many forms. It can happen in a completely private way. They reenact it with dolls. Uh, it can happen with a sibling. It can happen with a childhood friend. And uh, very often... Uh, children act out in some way in school, and that's where it gets picked up. So a lot of the literature comes from that because, you know, it's the only the more likely place where we actually, somebody in authority or somebody finds out about it. Um, and and it, it is, it's common enough, like I said, that it, it, it is a phenomenon in itself, and it's understood, and it's understood that this is one of the ways that children try to process something that was completely overwhelming to them and try to come to some kind of terms cognitively, emotionally with it. And, and kids act it out. That's just one of the ways kids do this. And like I said, they can act it out with inanimate objects, but they can equally likely act it out with an animate, another child. It's still the same process going on. They are trying to come to terms with something that completely overwhelmed them. And so I think part of this is that people have to have, you know, have to have empathy for themselves, for the child the, who was abused, you know, and in this case, if it's yourself, just as you could probably find the way to, to have empathy for another child who was in that position, who acted it out in some mm -hmm. way, you have to be able to try to turn that empathy on yourself. Uh, 
the other thing that I that I have seen are well, there was one case in particular um, where um, a, a girl emailed me. I think she was about fifteen years old, and she was distraught because I think when she was like twelve, she was babysitting an infant and she put her mouth on its on its penis and she and I encouraged her to go to therapy and she hadn't done it since then and um she had never been sexually abused but her home life was incredibly invalidating and chaotic and is that I would imagine that is something that also where those kids are just looking for some type of control and they get put in a position of power and they want to test their power is that is that something you you see um it, it's certainly possible and and you know because this is one of the 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 you know sort of the common um aspects of of growing up is is you know the sort of the transition from being a pretty much helpless and powerless child to um increasingly you know, sort of as you go through, you know, older childhood, as you approach adolescence, you know, all of a sudden you're no longer just that helpless child. But of course, you you still are in many ways, um, but you're now, you know, sort of beginning to, to sort of experience yourself, you know, in a little bit different ways. And, and um, w- w- when, you know, when a child is growing up in a, in a, just an adequately stable environment, you know, where there's, there's, you know, decent caretaking and parenting, um, then typically children find ways of, you know, you know, experimenting and testing, you know, the sort of new aspect of who they are, you know, in ways that are, you know, that don't, that don't (laughs) involve, you know, inappropriate touching and so forth. Um, but you know, lots of children don't grow up in those kinds of environments. And, and, and then it is more likely that, um, as they go through those phases and, and they will experiment like all other kids will, um, but it's more likely that um, some of that experimentation may not be, you know, mm-hmm. appropriate. Um, and, it, and it's, again, I just, you know, uh, I would want uh, anybody who's had that experience to, to um, you know, sort of, you know, it's okay to accept responsibility for your actions, um, um, but it's also important to um, have an appropriate empathy for yourself, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. Exactly. Responsibility and forgiveness precisely, are not. Yeah. Precisely. In fact, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. And if you're going to be held responsible, uh, perhaps you could also show empathy for yourself and feel the empathy for yourself. And, and I always feel like the best way to take responsibility for your past actions is to get help for yourself today. There is no more loving way to everyone around you um, than to than to get help, yes. you know, because people will say, "I seriously want to change. I'm seriously sorry for for what I did." And I say, "Well, then go to go to therapy." But some people, they just don't. They think they're going to be judged, or they don't want to go into that icky yucky place of looking yeah. at themselves. Yeah. Well, where in fact, um, making that decision to to get real help. Um, is actually it's it's an act of responsibility. It, it is a way of a profound way of taking responsibility for not only what you did, but for who you are now and who you're going to be, um, and how you're going to be towards other people. Yeah, I think with awareness definitely comes uh, re- responsibility. 
Um, yeah. And there is a, a lot of us, I think, f- can't have compassion um, for what happened to us as children because we imagine ourselves as should have having reacted as if we were a short adult. Right. <laughs> yes. We, we quickly forget um, what it's like to be a child. And in fact, in some ways, it's almost impossible once you're an adult. You know, it's, it's really a stretch of imagination and, and empathy and, and a lot of other things to, to have any real sort of, you know, real sense of, of what it is like. And part of that also is because, you know, once you're an adult, you know, to, to really experience the level of helplessness and powerlessness that you experience, even as a, a child in a normal environment, um, that's not a very fun thing to do. And it's, in fact, it can be a pretty scary thing. Um, so it's, it's not something we do very readily. Yeah. I mean, imagine yourself as your present day adult stuck in a car ride for 10 years with somebody who's eight and a half feet tall. Imagine (laughs) having to stand up to that person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I, when I was teaching and I, I, of course taught trauma for many, many years at the university of Massachusetts. And when I, I wanted to get across to my students, what it was like to be physically abused. I realized at some point that, you know, as much I could act it out and everything, but, but, but they would just see me, of course, they're all adults, you know, adult size. And, um, so what, what I would do is, is I would have a table at the front of the classroom. And at some point I would stand up on the table and, and just loom over all of the students. And of course I'd be, I'm six two and on a table and I would have a chair on the table. So I would be, you know, essentially, you know, 14 feet off the ground and say, this is what it's like. And now you imagine what it would be like if I put on the angriest face. And in fact, I looked like I was in another world and raised my hand over you. And that's what it's like for a child to stare up at a giant. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty, I, I, I would love to do that with a jury at some point, but I don't think a judge would let you stand on the table with the chair. I don't think so. I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> uh, American Idol, that, that judge would let you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what's the next phase of your story? So you begin to, to journal your graduates. Am I skipping over anything? Uh, no, the, you know, journaling. And then, uh, um, in graduate school, I, I really uh, had intensive therapy and it was in the context of the therapy that the the memories really started flooding back in fact very suddenly and um from that point it was really just constant work um did you want to give up no i i never wanted to give up um and and i i think because with each step um i i experienced you know in addition to the the terror and the discomfort and the everything else that went along with it, I experienced liberation and, um, you know, liberation in really profound ways and liberation, I'd I'd say liberation of my soul. Um, but also liberation on many, many mm, mundane levels, um, including the experience of, of for the first time, you know, really opening myself up to intimacy and to love and to caring and to a real relationship and the, the kind of, um, the, the giving and the taking involved in a real relationship. And that was so exciting and so wonderful to experience that, um, I always felt that, you know, whatever 
pain was involved and, and, you know, and I, I had nightmares, just horrendous nightmares for years and years. Um, <clears throat> never really mattered. Um, and it never, I never questioned at all, um, that this was worth it. Yeah. Uh, this was a really a road of liberation for me. The nightmares happened after you began to confront it? Yes. yes. Really? Oh, yes. Uh, and I still have periodically, I'll still have nightmares. Um, it's just, you know, <clears throat> you know, at this point I understand, you know, there were some experiences I had, um, you know, at an, at, at an age, um, that, um, I fully expect will, will stay with me, you know, for the rest of my life. Um, what's interesting is, is even though the nightmares can occasionally be just as bad as they ever were, you know, it's not the same person who wakes up, you know? When I wake up now and I've had one of those nightmares, so, you know, I, okay, well, I'm not going to go back to sleep right away because I don't want to revisit that one, you know, and I'll sit and sometimes I'll write and sometimes I'll just sit quietly for a while and meditate or, or you know, so there's, you know, it's, it's a different adult now with many, many other sort of layers of coping resources who, who deals with those nightmares. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I, I always, you know, I feel like if this podcast achieves anything, it's me being a cheerleader for therapy and support groups to help people achieve that liberation that that you talked about and to kind of you know a place for us to hold each other's hands and know that know that we're not alone and one of the things i always encourage when people write me an email my favorite email to get is when they say i've decided i finally decided i'm going to go to to therapy Mm -hmm. and i always ask them to give me an update and almost without fail within their first couple of um visits often their first visit they feel a little bit lighter even if yes. it was painful yes. they feel the lifting of something they feel yes. a pin light of hope talk about the um what the, the liberation felt like for you in your mind in your body in and in, in, in your soul as you began to give weight give weight to what happened to you and forgive yourself oh there was so many so many layers to that and so many um, examples. I mean, I literally um, at times felt as I walked out of the therapist's office after you know a particular session um, where I literally could, you know, feel like I was floating down the sidewalk. Yes. I mean, that, I mean, I can't, you know, it just physically felt that much lighter. Um, and, you know, I know the only way we can kind of really describe it is, is almost like through poetry, because how do you, you know, unless you believe me that that's how I felt physically lighter, like I could almost float off the sidewalk. I felt like I dropped a backpack. Yes. And, and you know, what, what was in the backpack? You know, well, shame, you know, that I carried around for decades, like it was mine. And the realization that it wasn't. The realization that I was an innocent child. And that he did that to me, um, you know, and when that, as that begins to sink in and that, and that sinks in, in layer, you know, layer by layer, take, you know, this is not just one moment where boom, okay, got that one, check it off. Um, but each time you go to another layer, you know, you get lighter. Um, and, and it's not just m- metaphor. It, it's, um, when you're not lo- no longer burdened by those kinds of negative things and negative feelings about yourself and in yourself, it just frees you up to be who you are. 
um, and, and you start relating to people in a completely different way. You're freer to relate to them. Um, one of the ways that I was always being so, you know, having internalized so much shame about myself, you know, it's hard to be spontaneous, right? How can you be oh spontaneous, yeah. right? If you have so much that you have to be afraid of, of ever exposing, yeah. you know, if you, and if you ever show, you know, show yourself, then people are going to know, who, oh, my God, it's not yucky, right? It's all about protecting that part yeah. of yourself that you don't want people to see. Right. But, and then you, so the moment you begin to realize, you know what, there's nothing there that I have to be ashamed of, that I, I can, you know, walk, walk up to somebody and say, hey, nice day, isn't it? And, and they're not going to look at me like, what kind of a creep are you, you know? Um, and, and actually, you didn't, you, the first time you try that, you do that. And they look at you, they turn to you and say, yeah. And they give you this great big wide open smile. And you realize, wow, that just happened. I just said something off the top of my head to this complete stranger. And they turned back to me and they said something really nice back to me. And then, man, now I'm just, I'm not floating. I'm just, you know, sort of riding on currents of air, right? And you realize how much love and how many good people there are yes. in the world once you begin to yes. be okay with who you are. It's, you're able to see that in them. And how much joy there can be in these kinds of simple connections with other human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, too, is liberating. I remember even, you know, visiting New York City during this period and you know people you know people think of new york city as this kind of really gruff and you know sort of where everybody's um you know sort of rude and so forth but i actually experienced new york city as yeah people can be kind of gruff but people also really connect with you you know mm-hmm. and 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 so when you're you know i used to test this you know i i i just have these kinds of spontaneous conversations with people and but to be fair, you were being mugged. <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was six feet. I was, I, I was not an easy target. So, um, but it, it was, it was, you know, these were really wonderful, um, you know, experiences that, 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 and, and they reinforce, of course, the process because, you know, you realize that this is happening because of, of taking on you know, all those memories and all those feelings. And it's the opposite of disassociating is it's being present. Yes. It's uh, and seeing all those nice little moments of, yes. you know, the way the person is dressed in front of you in line for coffee and saying, yeah. ah, I like that jacket. Where'd you get yes. that? That, you know, those are the things that keep right. me afloat. In right. my, in and just my having day. them turn around and look at you and a smile comes across their faces. Thank you. Yeah. And you realize you just said something nice to somebody and they really liked it. And they gave you this really nice smile back. And that's a precious moment. It is. It really is. Um, now would be a good time to uh, hear from uh, Steve Lepore, who is the executive director and founder of One in Six. Um, David is on the board of One in Six and is probably uh, the most visible uh, spokesperson. Or are you a founder as well of One in Six? Um, yes. Okay. Uh, I, I know that you are their most valued um, voice for um, survivors of, of male sexual abuse. But I, I want Steve, especially because they're sponsoring this episode, I want Steve to um, tell the people what One in Six does, how they can get involved, and and sure. et cetera, well, thanks, et cetera. Thanks for the opportunity and just the opportunity to, to hear the two of you conversate is always uh, mm-hmm. Important. It's a good reminder. Uh, so our work is with adult men who survive childhood sexual abuse and those that love them. So it could be a partner, a spouse, a family member, uh, neighbor, 
employee, what have you. And we have three very specific program areas. We have our website, which is the most authoritative website on the issue in the world, period. It's in English and Spanish, has uh, some interactivity. We've got a 24-7 support line and uh, lending library where someone can go and check out books for free. We'll send them to them, no questions asked. And uh, when they return it, they can get a ne another book, a second, third, fourth book, what have you. Uh, we've got an initiative that's nationwide where we train clinicians so a man might come in with a particular presenting issue uh, and not understand that that issue may lead from something that happened to that man as a child. So we help uh, professionals uh, to understand uh, the importance of what happened to uh, survivors and how to work with them in a more complete way, a more whole way, uh, to restore them to healthy lives. And then our awareness campaigns. We have two awareness campaigns. David's uh, not only uh, an authority on the issue and a founder of One in Six, but he's a photographer extraordinaire. And we've got uh, a black and white photo exhibit that uh, is up on the website and then we'll begin traveling the U.S. In fact, our first stop was today here in the Los Angeles area. We had a number of the portraits of men who were courageous enough to put their faces or allow us to put their faces in public, along with words that they have spoken about their experience. And I should tell you that they're quite hopeful, uh, which is the important thing to remember, that there is great hope uh, that this is not a dead end, that this is not something that has to be oppressive and, and overwhelming for, uh, for entire lifespans, that there's hope in front of uh, men who could choose to come forward and, mm -hmm. and work on the issue. And then we have One Blue String, and I think that's the thing that we'd really like to, to get the word out about uh, through your program, Paul, is that we distribute for free. Um, all someone has to do is write in and request it, the E string, low E string for a six-string guitar. It's a blue string that we send everybody, along with a couple of picks and some gig stickers. And the idea is to spur conversation. A lot of our work is to destigmatize the issue through conversation. And so when you put the string on your guitar, it's one of six. And as soon as somebody says, hey, why do you have a blue string? You can say, well, that's one of six. And indeed, that's the statistic. That's the number of men in our country who survived childhood sexual abuse. So it's to begin the conversation, if you will. And what we'd really love is for those folks that uh, have an interest. I think primarily what we'd really love is that anybody that needs help come to the website, uh, nose around, take your time. It would be in complete confidence. It's private. You're anonymous. We don't do any tracking of IP addresses or otherwise. And then uh, if you're so inclined uh, or if you uh, don't need to go to the website yourself and you're so inclined, we would love the support of uh, – uh, from you of our work if you're willing to uh, underwrite the work that we do. You could buy a t-shirt, you could buy a bracelet. I saw that you were wearing a bracelet today. It's six gu guitar strings that have been woven into a cool looking bracelet and uh, one of the six are blue and it's just a reminder. Uh, somebody said earlier today that they're part of uh, not apart from, and it's just a nice reminder. And so we've you got those. You can say that I said that. Okay, then I'll <laughs> let you say it. I was looking at it last night. Um, I was in the backyard, and um, my dog, it was late at night, and it was quiet, and I just looked down at it, and this, just this wave of emotion came up in me that I am a part of this group of men, and I'm not alone. Um and I could feel feel like the tears start to well up, like I, my story is valid. Um, Indeed. And it it just comforted me to look to look down at it and say, um, I'm not walking this. I'm not walking this alone. And I and I've always known that 
since I started recovering. I knew it intellectually, but I didn't really feel it until that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Your story is uh, your own and it's unique to you, but you're not alone in it. And your story is part of a very large mosaic. There's 19 million men in the U.S. who suffered childhood sexual abuse. So to come full circle, our work is supported through individual donations and foundations. We don't uh, receive any state or federal money. So on occasion, at the end of each year, during the giving season, if you will, we've got a couple of items that are for sale, and that will go right into the lending library or the support line or to pay the electric bill or what have you. And the uh, the web address is 1 and 6. 1 and 6 are the are the numbers, not the words. 1 and 6.org. So go, go check it out. And... Um, uh, David, is there anything that you you'd like to add before uh, before we wrap up? Well, I think uh, just to resonate with what you and Steve were just talking about. Um, I wasn't listening to Steve. I find him to be very tiring, <laughs> and I can't remember who you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, forget about what was just read. <laughs> no, I I, I think um, you know the the still the most important thing that we all have to communicate uh, to all those men out there is that they are not alone and that, um, you know, there, there are ways out of the, the isolation, both the internal isolation and sometimes, you know, the sort of the interpersonal and almost physical isolation. And uh, even though it's scary, uh, there are such rewards in it. Um, and, and that's one of the messages I think we all have to keep repeating and getting out there because uh, we want more and more of those 19 million men, you know, finding their voice and, and whether it's just talking to their partner, their spouse, a friend, a brother, a sister, a parent, um, and then maybe finding some help if they need some help um, and, and find their way out of the, the isolation and the shame. And I have to say, um, I met a couple of the... Um spouses and and mothers um of males who were sexually abused as children and there's something so touching to me about the support from them um i think it's because when i began to look at my story i always felt like oh but the women are you know the ones that it happens to the overwhelming majority of times and this is taking away from their plight which seems larger and more immediate but it's not it's really not and seeing that compassion from them and i suppose also the emails that i get especially from moms rallying circling the wagons and giving unwavering support it it touches me so so deeply and I want to I want to thank them as well for um for standing by their sons for standing by their brothers and their husbands and it's just um it's just so it means so much to me personally. Yeah. I I certainly echo that. Yeah. Echo those sentiments. David, thank you so much if people want to um get a hold of you um through through one and six email um is there an email address for one and six or should they go to the website you can do info at and uh, we'll farm it to the appropriate person okay steve david thank you so much i really appreciate it thank Thank you you, paul many thanks to uh to david and uh steve and uh be sure to go check out that website one and six dot org and uh support uh support them 
in any way that you uh, you can, or get the, that free uh, that free guitar string and start talking about it. Um, before we get into uh, the surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the program if you feel so inclined. Um, you can go to the website mentalpod.com uh, and make a, a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation uh, for as little as five bucks a month. And that uh, is the financial foundation that allows this uh, podcast to to keep going. And um it means a lot to me, those of you that are monthly donors. You can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating, writing something nice. Uh, and especially this holiday season, you can shop through our Amazon uh, search link. And that's a great way to support us financially. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, but if you're going to buy something on Amazon, just enter through the search portal on the right-hand side of our homepage about halfway down, not to be confused with the search box for our site itself. Um and you can support us by spreading the word uh, about the podcast through social media. Uh, that really, really helps. All right, let's get into the surveys. Uh, and I'm going to try something today. Um, wherever possible, I'm going to just read the responses without um, saying what the question was that's posed because I think it's kind of self-explanatory on some of these. Um, and uh, yeah. Let's see how that goes. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Quills. She is uh, bisexual in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I've worked with children quite a bit. Sometimes the thought or urge to do something inappropriate pops in my head. It freaks me out. It seems more like the strange urge to jump when standing on a cliff than something I actually want to do. I'm not sexually attracted to kids, nor would I ever do something like that to another human being. Um, her secrets, I was molested by my grandmother's boyfriend when I was around four. He coerced me into touching his penis. I told my parents without really understanding what it meant. He got busted and went to jail for a few years. My grandmother didn't believe me and stayed with him until he died. I cut myself from the ages of 12 to 14. Very few people ever knew. I stopped cutting myself when my older sister started having a lot of mental health problems. I auditioned to be in porn once. Uh, I was really tight on money. The director said it was an all-female scene. He made it sound like we were going to just meet up to talk. I ended up having him take naked pictures of me, quote, for reference. Then he wanted to practice BDSM with me to, quote, check my pain tolerance. The situation felt wrong, so I left. Um, sexual fantasies, uh, I have a lot. Here are a few. I like to fantasize about men having sex with each other especially if one is being cruel to the other. This was my go-to fantasy in my teens. Uh, I couldn't insert myself into fantasies back then. I've thought about being kept as a prisoner, being stimulated to lactate, and being suckled by my master. The master in that situation is firm but loving. I've had fantasies of pegging a man or a woman. Sometimes I'm, male, I'm the male in the fantasy. A bunch of men fighting to try to impregnate me. I'm willing but passive being kept in a cage with another human being and being encouraged to mate. Think Planet of the Apes. I've told my partner most of these fantasies. He's not into pegging or having sex with other men. We played with me pretending to be lactating and him sucking me. We played a bit with BDSM, switching roles. He has a hard time staying in character when being dominant. 
I have the urge to be a bit too violent and controlling when I'm dominant. I really have to rein it in and make it lighter so he doesn't have a bad time. Um, I see myself as a very independent and kind person. Interesting how primitive my fantasies are. I don't like the idea of someone judging me based on my fantasies. It can be difficult for me to stay in the moment with sex, so thinking of highly charged fantasies helps me focus. Thank you for sharing that. This is the same survey filled out by Johnny Blue, who is male. Um, He is gay. He is in his 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, um, never been sexually abused, and um, deepest, darkest thoughts, I feel alone in life, I feel emotionally broken, I can't elaborate much, I just have a broader range of emotions now than I ever used to, and I'm having to learn how to deal with them in a healthy way. I don't really have any dark secrets. The thing I most regret was that I didn't navigate the open relationship with my former husband well at all. He's a sex addict, and I was naive enough to think that he meant he really just likes sex. It took me five years with him to have sex with anyone else. I assumed that we had an open relationships, and relationships since he told me he was a sex addict and was having sex with other guys. I think that he... What he wanted for me was to be monogamous while he was not. That would have been fine with me if I had understood that's what he wanted, but he couldn't say. Obviously, he knew that that would be unfair, and he couldn't stand admitting that he wanted such a double standard. I often feel that if I could just have done that differently, maybe he could have stayed with me. Of course, I realize that he was emotionally unstable, and that that isn't ultimately my fault and had nothing to do with me but I still feel broken. I think I am emotionally bonded with him. I think he somehow passed his emotional dysfunction to me when he left. In that sense, I feel closer to him than ever. And his sexual fantasies, he just quite simply put spanking. Um, This is same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Small One. She... um, is bisexual in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, uh, Any sexual abuse, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, No condom, didn't want to do it, happened anyway, cried afterwards. That sounds like sexual abuse to me. Um, Deepest, darkest thoughts, that I'm a horribly selfish person. Uh, I molested my little brother when I was 12 or 13. I was going through puberty and wanted to see a live penis. I made him put it between my budding breasts, and when he couldn't, I got mad and yelled. He cried. I shook him and made him promise not to tell. I don't know if he remembers or not, but I feel horrible. Um, I'm no therapist, but my suggestion would be as uncomfortable as it is um, to go make amends to him and apologize and it just seems like when people bury that stuff it doesn't it doesn't help or talk to a therapist about it and get their get their take on it uh sexual fantasies sleeping with a gay man and or having a dick and penetrating a gay man with it um would you ever tell a partner yeah sure my sexual partners know this about me it's not something i'm ashamed of although it isn't something to reveal on the first date either i disagree I think you go to dinner, you order the sausage, and then you say, speaking of sausage, how's this grab you? And then you lay into the fantasy. But you got to make sure that you uh, you have a cigarette in a, in a cigarette holder, and uh, right before you share this, you blow out a big puff of smoke right in his face. That's just my take. Uh, 
Did these thoughts generate any particular feelings? Puzzlement, but not unsettlement. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I hope you can forgive yourself for what uh, what happened with your, your brother. Um, this is just one excerpt from uh, a guy who calls himself Anon. Uh, sexual fantasies. I like the way anal sex distorts the vagina a bit, like it's being ignored. Oh, fuck, that made me laugh. Um, this is from a new uh, survey uh, called What Has Helped You? And uh, this is filled out by Jules. And she writes, uh, her issue was major depressive disorder, anxiety, and insomnia. And what helped her was meds and therapy. Uh, she writes, are the obvious ones. Getting pets has helped tremendously. Not just for the affection, but caring for others. Being needed helps me keep going. Also volunteer work. My clients mean the world to me, and my co-volunteers have become the best friends I could ask for. Plus, it gets me out of the house and forces me to commit to something long-term. That's awesome. Thank you, Jules. This is also from a new survey um, uh, about people's experience being hospitalized. And this is filled out by uh, Cola Bear. And uh, she writes, uh, she was hospitalized for suicidal intentions. And uh, the first time was scary, but was the best place for me to become stable. The second time was at a different hospital, and it was horrible. Uh, this is from what the, the What Helped You survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself OK. Uh, his issues are anxiety and depression, and what helps is talking. When I started feeling that something is wrong, when I start feeling something's wrong, I try to talk about it. Recently, I was paranoid and obsessing about a problem at work and chose to talk to my supervisor. I did a one-way fear-off and explained what I was afraid of. Thankfully, he was receptive and assured me things were okay. I chose to talk instead of internalizing the issue. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, this is the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Cat in the AM. Uh, she is straight, uh, 23 years old, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, when my son was a baby, I thought about killing him. I never did, but I hate myself for thinking about it. He is such a beautiful being that I created, and to admit to such horrible thoughts is horrible. Uh, to admit to such thoughts is horrible. I love him so much, and I have so much anger for the person that took my innocence away and completely destroyed the person I could and should have been. I had the chance to be totally normal, but 10 years of my life was taken for his own sexual gratification, and I couldn't even get the pleasure of a mother who believed me. Oh, that breaks my heart. Um, Darkest Secret, something that happened. This is this one. I read a lot of stuff that kind of... Uh, I'll just read it. Um, the voyeurism. Apart from the 10 years of abuse I endured, the same person also rigged my entire home so that from any point in the home he could watch me dress, undress, bathe, and sleep. Often I would wake up in the night to his boner poking my left, or I would be in the shower and get this intense feeling of being watched. One day I discovered the addict has a full view of the bathroom and tub. This same area was embellished with socks and tissues. I know that's a hard one for you guys to hear, but something in me feels like I have to read these. Um, sexual fantasies. When I think about sexual acts, the thought of stepfather and stepdaughter sex 
really piques my interest. I have even watched online porn depicting such. Occasionally rape will trigger my interest. Makes no sense when I describe myself as a closet feminist. Well, welcome to the insane world of why the fuck does that turn me on? And so often it's oddly related to stuff that happened to us and seemingly against what we want to be turned on by. You are not alone in that. Um, uh, have you, would you consider sharing this with a friend? No, I'm trying to grow away from my corrupt mind and begin a journey of healing and form the person I was born to be. I don't know if, if keeping that inside and not sharing with anybody is necessarily going to help that. I don't, I don't know. A therapist might know better. Um, and I feel shame and disgust towards myself, but I also know it wasn't my fault. And to say that is so powerful for myself. I'm glad you, I'm glad you are putting the shame where it belongs. This is from the What Has Helped You. And uh, Jude writes that his issues uh, are lifelong depression, loneliness, having no friends or family to talk to, intimacy issues, feeling unlovable, low self-esteem, and suppressed childhood memories that may have to do with sexual abuse. What helps? Throughout my childhood, I would deal with my problems by cutting, choking myself in the shower, suffocating myself in bed, banging my head against the wall, and overdosing on prescription drugs. Over the past couple of years, I've, I've dealt with them by getting high, drinking, and watching porn. While I know these aren't the healthiest coping skills, they are a step in the right direction. My goal is that one day, weed, alcohol, and porn will turn into yoga, jogging, and going to the gym. I love that. I love that. I love that he is that he is being compassionate and patient with himself while while he does this and he's hopeful that it's going to get better. And some days I think that's really kind of all we can ask for and I want to give you a big hug, buddy. Um I just want to read an excerpt from this guy's uh, survey. He calls himself Gamer89. And, and this is not to shame him. Uh, he writes uh, about his darkest secrets. When I was a young teenager, probably 13 to 15, I had sexual relations with two of my nieces who were very young and a young stepsister of mine. I use the term sexual relations because nothing that happened between me and them required force. It's just something that ended up happening. Um, abuse doesn't require force. Um, manipulation can be enough. Um, and when there's an age, a large age difference like that, um, I, I think that's important. Um, emphasizing. And I don't do that to shame you. Um, this is uh, from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself squeak and I just want to read uh, his sexual fantasy. He writes my favorite and most powerful fantasy involves being tied up in front of a large crowd of people and being forced to sexually pleasure several women while being beaten and degraded not allowed to orgasm until I have satisfactorily pleasured them all. Then they all use a knife to carve their names on my chest then pierce my nipples while one of them gives me oral sex until I orgasm. Apparently that rings my dog's bell. Oh my god, it's ringing both of my dog's bells. All right, do I need to pause? I'm going to keep going. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You uh, survey, and it was filled out by... All right, I'm going to pause. All right, continuing. Uh, this is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fishing Moon 
Her issues are bipolar, sexual abuse as a child, raped as a teenager, and what helps is support from my counselor who is non-judgmental. Sometimes just the simplest, simplest thing can break it open for us. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled up by a woman who calls herself IBIS from Finland. And she's straight, uh, in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. Uh, my most profound, deep, dark thought is that nothing lasts. When I achieve something, I already see how I will eventually lose it. When I see puppies, I see them get older and die right in front of my eyes. Every time my phone rings in an unusual hour, I'm sure it's someone calling me that a loved one, usually my dog or parents, has died. I see things wither away and disappear the moment I have the tiniest grasp of them. Um... Darkest Secrets, I cheated on my husband with my best friend's husband. When her husband died in a car accident, I felt relieved and ashamed before I felt the loss. And uh, I just want to suggest, first of all, send her a big hug, and I just want to suggest um, the something that might really help with you extrapolating into the future is uh, is meditation. Uh, that can be really helpful. And uh, read the book A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. It's a really, really uh, good book for helping us uh, be in the moment and just accept things exactly uh, as they are, the things that we don't have control over. Uh, this is from The Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself not an Easter Brook. He is uh, straight in his 20s. Uh, the environment he was raised in, he writes, a little dysfunctional. Uh my parents stopped having sex in the 80s, which my mom told me about in heartbreaking detail at some point during my adolescence. This frustration, combined with my dad being the only breadwinner and my mom treating him like a servant, naturally led to arguments. My dad was pretty much incapable of unwilling to stand up for himself or us when my mom went on her rampages. That sounds more than a little dysfunctional. That sounds emotionally incestuous um, and probably more stuff uh let's see deepest darkest thoughts my darkest thought is how liberated i'll feel when my mom dies i know it's wrong no it's not it's not wrong to uh to feel anything um he writes i know it's wrong but her funeral will probably be one of the best days of my life if my upbringing hadn't made me so effective at lying and bottling up my emotions i would probably show up for her funeral with a mile uh wide smile and what wouldn't there be to smile about? No more guilt about how I've disappointed her with my career. Uh, making enough to live comfortably and save while doing something I enjoy isn't good enough. No more guilt about my failure to get married or procreate by the advanced age of 30. No more of her unbearable hypocrisy telling us how selfish we are when she spent the last three decades mooching off my dad and his 9 to 5, 7 to 7 if you count overtime and commutes than treating him like shit even though he spent his non-working hours waiting on her hand and foot. No more heartbreaking arguments where she screams ridiculously hurtful things at us and then tries to act con contrite as if she didn't just tell us how much she hated us all and how big a mistake it was to marry my father and give birth to my sister and me on Christmas, naturally. It occurs to me that maybe I should feel guilty about looking forward to my mother's death. That I'm starting to feel this guilt as I write these words is a pretty strong indication that I'll feel guilty at her funeral too. It'll be her last parting shot, I guess. Anyway, it's not like she was neglectful or physically or sexually abusive. 
It's not like she was neglectful. I, that is textbook emotional neglect. Um, he writes, uh, compared to the horror stories I've read on the internet, not to mention heard on this podcast, I had it extremely good. Let's just take a moment to soak that in. Wow. Man, I just want to reach through the internet and give you a hug. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Physical transformation into animals, aliens, dragons, whatever. Sometimes I'll fantasize about becoming a woman and just straight up dominating a man, tying him up and sitting on his face until he damn near asphyxiates, then finally letting him fuck me. I also occasionally fantasize about becoming a woman and having sex with women, but that has nothing to do with control. Um, uh, would you consider telling someone this, a partner? No, I'm not sure what good would come of telling my partner who I care for deeply that she'll never be as alluring to me sexually as something that can never actually happen. Well, I don't know. Um, you can role play. That's my thought. Things don't have to be in reality for, you know, possible in reality for there to be role play. I think it could maybe bring you closer together. Just my thought. Um, the secret about my mom generates guilt and makes me feel like a shitty son. Well, more so. The sexual fantasies make me feel like I'm different, but it's not like they get in the way of my real-world sex life. Buddy, I am so with you on the um, fantasizing about a parent dying and anticipating that feeling of relief. I've felt that way for 25 years. Uh, what has helped you? Uh, Maggie uh, writes uh, for her depression my pets volunteer work and affects her this is the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself JT he's straight and metrosexual in his 20s raised in a totally chaotic environment physical and emotional abusive mother uh, when I was younger um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but I don't know if it counts uh, my mother would expose herself to me and my younger sibling. Yes, that is sexual abuse. No two ways about it. Um, darkest thoughts. I was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 17. Sometimes I can't help my thoughts of violence. I try to focus on hurting myself instead of doing harm to others. I feel a great amount of self-hatred and self-disgust because of this. Um and then sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I try to think about sex as little as possible. I try to block out any aggressive thoughts. I can't take the risk of becoming an abusive and violent partner, so I stay single purposefully because of that fear of becoming a family abuser in an emotional or physical way like my mother was. This is not a fantasy. It's a fear that I will do harm to innocent others. Um, and he does have a therapist. Um I've talked about this with my dad and my therapist, but otherwise, no, I wouldn't share this with anybody. Um, thank you for sharing that, JT. This is uh, from What Has Helped You, filled out by Plumeria, and she writes about her anxiety, depression, and chronic pain. Um, about her anxiety, I make lists. When my thoughts are in, on paper, they are less likely to bang around in my head all day long. Singing. It helps focus my mind on the words and voice, like a loud meditation. I can focus on what my body is doing in the present and not about my very annoying thoughts uh, that are yammering on about, uh, yammering on about. 
Depression. Uh, I listen to comedy podcasts that break up that foreboding feeling of hopelessness. The raunchier, the better. Walking the room would be the best example. I agree heartily. I feel it's a good distraction from my own sad thoughts. Uh, for all three, anxiety, depression, and chronic pain, I get acupuncture regularly every two weeks. It has kept the peaks of anxiety and the dips of depression from going into the extremes and has reduced my physical pain about 90% to the point where I rarely need medication. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secrets survey uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Harmon. And uh, she's in her 20s, bisexual, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Um, I, I would actually counter that from what I've read of her thing, um, the things that her father has shared with her is, is sexually um, abusive to me. Uh, and I think a lot of therapists would agree. Anyway, darkest thoughts. My father suffers from narcissistic personality disorder and the damage he does to me and the rest of his family drives me insane. When he's at his worst, he's dating multiple women whom he's convinced them uh, that he plans to leave his wife for. He physically uh, attacks my mother and threatens to take away my younger sister if she ever tries to leave him or throws him out. Uh, he literally breaks doors down and screams at me if he believes I've told one of his girlfriends about uh, the other one, which I do not. He's also incredibly paranoid. He compulsively lies about every waking moment of his life, and he also um, tells and has convinced my younger sister that her own mother doesn't really love her, that her own mother is ugly and her own mother is stupid and compares her to an animal on a daily basis. When he was married to my mother when I was five and until I matured enough to see he was completely full of shit, he had convinced me the same was true about my mother. He victimizes himself in every situation he's in, including how guilty he felt after he ripped the finger off one of his girlfriends. Even though he was never prosecuted, I remember once uh, he told me that he went to their home after that same girlfriend had found his laptop, had pictures of her teenage daughter, a daughter's friend in a bikini, and saved onto his hard drive. And when I tried to explain to him why it was normal for someone to find that incredibly creepy, he ignored me and went on to tell me how bad he felt when he went to recover his computer from his girlfriend. Uh, and her daughter had become enraged and physically attacked him, demanding he get out of their house. Wow. When I was a teenager living in a place where there wasn't any work and going... Uh, through my very own intense emotional episodes relating to my borderline personality disorder, he used to call me and have me act as a pseudo-therapist for two hours every other day. I didn't mind being there for my dad, and I knew well enough by this point that he was an incredibly sick individual, but some of the things he brought up were specifically about sex and his girlfriends, how much he was in love with certain ones, how he still had sex with my stepmother, um, sometimes and lied to each woman he was involved with when it came uh, to if he was cheating on them and how he didn't think that anything he was doing was wrong. I couldn't ask him to stop calling me about these things because after he was finished, he'd usually send me $50 for my time and that would be enough uh, to eat and use the heater for a few days. At this time, he was also seeing a therapist that he had begged I find him and call uh, to set it up uh, for initial consultations. Don't get me wrong, therapy has greatly improved him and lowered his violent tendencies by a lot, but I hated that he couldn't see that I was struggling to deal with him telling me all these 
misogynistic and sometimes violent things about women, even though we knew I considered his behavior inexcusable and disgusting. When a lot of his shitty behaviors are going on at once, which they often are, the only thing that brings me true release is the idea of very slowly torturing and killing him. This goes against my general personality as a whole. I'm a pacifist, a vegan, and a human rights act- activist. But thinking about absolutely physically cutting my father as he screams for me to stop is the only thing that can lift me out of the depression caused uh, by his yelling in my face that there isn't any of my or my sister's business that he's sleeping with one of his girlfriends literally one room away from us, still married and entrapping my sister's mother in an extremely shitty relationship. He's an otherwise great father. Let's just soak that in like an Epsom salts bath. And I don't do these moments of calling attention to that to make you feel bad. I do that in the hopes that you can understand I don't know. I just feel when I read that, I'm just my it just takes my breath away. He's an awful father. The other things that he's doing, the positive things, he should, you know, she writes, he's an otherwise great father and has given me and my sister everything we need financially in regards to school, clothing, food, etc. You know, that in my opinion, though important is the least important, the emotional nurturing, protecting Hearing, seeing, and feeling your child is the important shit. Your dad, she writes, he's not a bad person. No, he's not a bad person, but he is a terrible, terrible father. And, you know, if somebody ever is in the category of cut him out of my life, boy, does this guy fucking strike me as that. Anyway, Darkest Secrets, I don't have any problems with this one once I'm in a relationship with a man, but knowing that I can't do anything to avoid having men look at me sexually while I'm just out doing everyday stuff makes me sick to my stomach. I know this probably has a lot to do with my childhood and father, but turning and seeing a man I've never met before looking at my butt or seeing someone I've just met glance down at my chest for a little too long as we're talking fills me with a deep and intense anger and shame. I can't stand that certain people entirely disregard what type of human being I am and can just reduce me to my body parts. I binge eat and try to gain weight even though a bad diet severely impacts my borderline symptoms and makes it much easier for me to succumb to dangerous emotional episodes. Some of the women I've asked about trying to reduce male attention say that it often makes them uncomfortable too, but it's something you learn to deal with. A few have told me I should be flattered. I feel so frustrated and helpless writing this. It's the only thing left in my life that makes me want to kill myself. I hate that nearly every woman has to go through this and that it's their fault for being born female, never the men who have these thoughts about girls and women. I just want to be healthy and not have anyone look at me for it. I want so fucking badly to be a person to everyone and not have the way certain men look at me hanging over my every thought, controlling my every action. Well, I want to personally apologize to you for my history of looking at women that way and objectifying them. Um, I, I like to think that I keep it inside my head and and I don't do it in a way that they are aware of. Um, I'm pretty confident of that. But 
to to and I hate that part of myself and I wish I could change it. It is um it feels like OCD to me. And I hope you know that some of the people that do that um clearly there are ones that don't give a shit and you know think it's okay for you to see them looking at at you like that. Um but there are also other ones aren't aware of it and it's a it's a compulsion and I, that probably doesn't make you feel any better um, about it but um, giving you a hug uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I imagine being in a committed and equal relationship with someone who I've known very well and trust deeply and implicitly having sex with someone and knowing that both of us feel safe I don't trust anyone I know and intimacy on even just the base levels uh, you need to hold hands, kiss, or date feels next to impossible for me. I always have to force it, and I don't feel anything when I do. I don't trust anyone. The only thing that turns me on sexually is the feeling of pretending I could ever be that emotionally close to someone, even though I'm not sure it's something I'll ever experience. It makes me feel empty and worthless to know my father chose random women over his own daughter's mental health and childhood. I hope that you can go talk to somebody about that emptiness and that sadness. Um, and I think that might be the beginning of getting to trust other people and maybe maybe contact the Rape and Incest National Network because what your father did is incest. You don't have to touch a child's genitals to be incestuous with them and his is as clear of a case of incest as I've ever seen. And one of the hallmarks of children who have been um, incested um, is that they uh, completely lose trust and intimacy is difficult. So I don't believe that you're that way for the rest of your life. You just need to um, talk about it and build trust and save people. And they are out there. We are out there. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Little Drummer Boy. He's straight in his 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. Um, he writes, I don't know if I'm depressed, uh, bipolar, or just chemically imbalanced. I'm the single breadwinner in my home, and I'm scared to admit to my wife that all the pressure I feel on my job, my debt, and responsibility of earning a living for her, my daughter, and I, that something else up in my brain might be off. I should feel content I have a great job I like and a beautiful wife and daughter who adore me. Instead, I feel pressure. I can hardly look at my girls without wanting to break down emotionally about how scared I am. I can't protect them in this shitty world like I should be able to. How we're swallowed in debt because of me. How I should be the stable man they can rely on, but instead I feel weak and like a failure for not being the 10-foot giant they've built me up to be. My wife doesn't know I drink. Uh, that just past warm-bodied but not quite buzzed feeling is what I'm addicted to. Whether it's from booze, pills, even the occasional bottle of cold medicine, I just need some sort of chemical to quiet the nagging, badgering voice in my head telling me I'm a failure and I've ruined my wife's life. My heart goes out to you and I think a support group, um, if you can't quit the drinking or the, the drugs would be a great place to begin to open up and talk about this stuff inside you and maybe it'll help you find the words to share this with your wife because any healthy wife is going to want to know that her husband is in pain and you can still be that 
big protector to your to your daughter but let let your wife in on your your inner life she deserves that as a, as a partner to know that wouldn't you want to know that about her um this is from the shame and secrets filled out by a woman who calls herself inertia um she is straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, darkest thoughts. I often fantasize about being attacked and having that attack witnessed by someone I love so that I could be believed and have a legitimate reason to fall apart on that person and have them hug me and not feel guilty for having that proof of love. Oh my God. I don't even know the words to express how deeply I have that and almost, I don't want to be attacked, but to just fall apart and hug somebody and cry. And and I do that sometimes, and it feels awesome. Um, I encourage you to find somebody appropriate to do that with, and I totally understand that feeling. Deepest, darkest secrets, I often go to my friends with problems, not because I particularly need their advice for anything, but because I know they'll give me a hug. This leads to me becoming the friend who's always got a problem. It is true that quite a lot of stuff happened, but I'm sure I could deal with most of it on my own if I weren't so desperate for connection. What's the matter with just saying, hey, I I just really need a hug. I just really need a hug today. I need a shoulder to lean on, you know, and then let it let it go. And if you can't find that in your friends, find a support group because support groups are filled with people who are willing to let you cry on their shoulder because the next day they need to cry on your shoulder. Um, I don't really have any sexual fantasies. Uh, I've had very little sexual experience. When I have a crush, I picture us kissing, but not usually much more. My mind is blank when I masturbate. I wouldn't share this because I feel it's childish and uh, I feel immature and needy. You don't sound immature and needy. To me, you sound like it. A really gentle uh, person that has a lot of love to give to the world but hasn't found the words to express it yet and that's a pretty simple thing to um, to fix and in my opinion so I like your chances of, of finding peace and connection uh, this last thing I want to read is a happy moments and uh, kind of typical of the ones that that I like to read is there's uh, it's it's kind of bittersweet and this is filled out by Tip Tap 2. And they write, My mother has a rare... And I think this is a guy. It's the survey got cut off. Uh, My mother has a rare genetic disorder that gives her a predisposition for tumors near several of her internal organs. She was in surgery a few months ago for an operation for several tumors that grew dangerously close to her pancreas. The recovery was projected for 10 days, but complication after complication came up, and it was weeks before she could even move. Before we knew it, two months had passed, and she was still weak and bedridden with tubes in her body. In the meantime, since the holidays were getting closer, my part-time job was suddenly full-time, and finals at college were just a few weeks away. I was a stressed-out wreck, but I didn't want to burden anyone else since we were going through such crazy times. One night, I was visiting my mother along with my dad and grandma. My mother told us uh, that she'd been having random sharp pains, and the nurses weren't sure what was causing it. We talked for a bit before everyone else had to leave, and I was alone with my mother. Um, Out of nowhere, she asked me what I had been doing for fun lately. 
I've been into weird and nerdy stuff for all of my life, and over the years I've learned to just avoid talking about it since I figured at best I'd confuse everyone else, and at worst I'd get teased about it. But seeing my mother in the state she was in, I swallowed my embarrassment and answered her honestly. I told her that I'd been reading a comic book series called JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I gave her a brief description of it, a family with supernatural powers fighting vampires and ancient Aztec gods. Very comic bookery stuff. But my mother's eyes lit up as I talked to her. She told me uh, the one thing she most wanted to avoid was burdening the rest of the family. She knew how stressed out I was, and she was glad that I still found time for the things I liked. It was such a small thing, but I immediately knew that I had made her her day better uh, simply because I was keeping myself together. And the fact that I had cheered her up made me feel better too. Ah, love that. Love that, love that, love that. Well, thanks to um, you guys for listening. Uh, thanks to uh, my guest for coming and sharing his story and um, helping me feel less alone. I'm sure what you could tell by how many times I chimed in about my my story while he was uh, he was sharing. I felt a little self-conscious after that, but I decided to leave that stuff in. And um, I hope if you've... Um, stuck with this this long episode uh to the end you you can see that you're not alone and we all have issues and we're all trying to do the best we can and um yeah hang in there i know this this time of year is really tough for a lot of people be good to yourself take naps if you need them if you gotta cry cry and uh just know that you're not alone and thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.